I think that we need to get back to the basics of realizing the Word of God is still living and powerful. If we will preach it faithfully, we preach evangelism to the unsaved. They need to be born again. If somebody's transgender or homosexual or whatever they are, if they have not been born again, that's secondary. I'm Jim Daly, and Joe Dallas is my guest today, helping us to gain clarity on our mission as believers to share Christ above all else and let Him work in someone's heart after they have a relationship with Him. Welcome to Refocus with Jim Daly, a podcast production from Focus on the Family. I'm looking forward to sharing a great discussion I had with Joe Dallas recently. This is one of those deeper conversations I can have on the podcast without time limits, and I think it's one you're going to want to lean into. I talked with Joe about a variety of cultural issues, including cancel culture, LGBT issues, pro-gay theology, God's design for the family, and how to share your Christian faith effectively. That is quite a list. Uh, Joe has a solid handle on what's going on in the culture today, and he also has an amazing testimony. As a young man, he identified as a homosexual before God changed his heart and turned his life around. He's now a pastoral counselor, ministry leader, and author of the book, Christians in a Cancel Culture, Speaking with Truth and Grace in a Hostile World. That title says it all, and in this episode, uh, Joe's going to help you to love others who have a different worldview while you're standing on biblical truth. Here's Joe Dallas on Refocus with Jim Daly. Uh, man, I've watched you from afar. We haven't had a chance to really sit down and talk before, so I'm looking forward to our discussion and uh, kind of getting into some of the things that are going on in the culture. Yeah, and, lots to get into. Yeah, there's a lot <laughs> to get into and uh, helping people better understand where you've come from. Um, I think everyone probably knows what cancel culture is. Let's start there. Uh, when you look at it, how would you define what cancel culture is all about? Yeah, Jim, the term has kind of morphed. Uh, yeah. Cancel culture a few years ago meant more specifically the attempts to erase the history of figures that were now deemed unacceptable. If they owned a slave, for example, or if they held the wrong position on different issues, we would cancel their memory or or tear down their statue or remove them from the history books. Now uh, the concept has broadened, so really you, you can lump cancel culture, the woke movement, social justice movement, all of them are part of what I call a crusade. And basically cancel culture then is part of a crusade to revise our understanding of some basic concepts that, that have always uh, bound us together, the definition of family, the definition of marriage, the definition of social justice, uh, the definition of patriotism, definition of faith and religious freedom. These have all been basic kind of pillar concepts that we've always held on to. Cancel culture has basically moved in over the past decade especially and said, we want to revise this. And we will revise this. And if you will not go along with the revision, then you are one of the infidels. Every crusade has infidels, right? I mean, the crusade... The good guys to, and the bad guys. You got it. Yeah, We're the bad guys. I mean, I don't care how nice we are. I don't care how reasonable we are, how loving we are. If we hold to biblically-based values, if we hold to a biblically-based worldview, cancel culture as a movement will not accept us as anything but infidels. Now, I don't, I don't want to make everybody involved in it out to be some lethal enemy. Because every movement is made up of individuals. Just like, you know, you got the Pharisees. They were obviously hostile to Jesus. But, you know, then you got a Nicodemus. 
And you, you get reasonable people, and you have reasonable people in any movement. Sure. But the movement itself uh, basically views anyone holding to traditional viewpoints as needing to be converted. And if they will not be converted, they need to be silenced. So I, that's that's my long yeah, answer. Yeah, no, no, that's really good. And cancel culture, to me, when you look at it, always tilts to the progressive left. I mean, it's oh, not a... Sure cancel culture toward the right in any way to those uh, traditional positions. I think one of the difficulties we have, Joe, um, being more conservative is it's even hard to have a dialogue with these people because oh, yeah. there's no definition of anything. You know, what you talked about a moment ago, those traditional values of family, nuclear family. I mean, it always drives me nuts when they say nuclear family is a Western European construct. And you're going, well, Jesus talked about it. Mm -hmm. He said, a man shall leave his mother and father right. and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So it, it's kind of interesting that they lay that at the feet of Western European enlightenment. I think that somehow makes it look more like it's a human construct. There's no divine authority attached to it. It's just cultural, and as such, it needs to be revised to move ahead with the times. Yeah, and you know? again, it just always tilts to the left. And we're going to weave in and out of all of these themes. So I'm coming back to some of the things you're talking about, but I want to get a little laser focused on the LGBT mm -hmm. movement. And yep. if you look at that um, effort, you know, they gained some incredible ground in this culture. Hmm. You know, one of the things I, I try to make contact with people in that community, and I, you know, thankfully I have been able to develop some friendships. And, you know, Good. before people say, wow, you know, how can you do that? Hey, I believe the Lord does call you to do that. The key is don't give up your biblical positions right. in that relationship. But, you know, it's important to develop relationships with mm -hmm. people who think differently. I don't, I'm not afraid of that. Sure. I think the gospel will do its work regardless. But in that construct, the, the thing that I've found is uh, the gains, again, that they've made. I mean, they were able to make those gains in a democracy. They got to the table of power, you might say. And I think one of the biggest challenges they have is how do they change from being a more militant group into a pluralistic element within mm -hmm. a culture that believes a lot of different things. You know, Christians have a place at the table. I think it's fair to say they built the table, mm -hmm. you know, Judeo-Christian values in this country. And and in that construct, you know, how do we recognize wh where the LGBTQ community has come from and where they're at today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I was part of that. Right. I mean, I, uh, from 1978 to 1984, I was a very committed member of the gay community uh, and for years served on the staff of a pro-gay church and very actively promoted the idea that homosexuality and the Bible were compatible. And then my last few years when I was with the gay community, I became much more of an activist. So I've been on that side of the issue. Now, I won't legitimize any of what I stood for when I was a part of that, but I will tell you this, Jim, it was a more reasonable movement at that time. I, I have to no say, attempt. oh, I look at it now, I don't even recognize this. I mean, yeah. in my day, which was a long time ago, admittedly, but in, in my time, I don't know anyone who wanted to impose an ideology on churches. I, I didn't know anyone who wanted to silence the church or silence conservatives for that matter. Um, what we were fighting for at the time was decent treatment. Please don't beat us up. 
don't call us ridiculous names. Don't outlaw us. You know, let us at least be able to live in peace. Now, there may have been some in the leadership at that time, late 70s, early 80s, who had something a little more sinister in mind and thought, well, we'll get our foot in the door and then once we're in, we'll take over. But I sure didn't see that. I mean, at at the time I was a part of it, I think most of the things we were asking for were at least reasonable. I was wrong. We were wrong in, in a lot of areas. But the movement did not have the same complexion it has today. What it's become now is basically a demand for the normalization of homosexuality and transgender. And um, and uh, normalization includes acceptance oh, by yeah. all. Yeah, th- this is not tolerance we're yeah. talking about. This This is basically approval. I mean, there was a time... Gee, I even remember a few years ago. Do you remember all those nice bumper stickers that said coexist and you had all the right. different religious? Yeah, well, forget that, that nice? brother. I mean, well, that's old. That, that train's gone. Yeah, and I, I remember, you know, it was about hospital visitation with their partner. Right, right. Uh, you know, if there was a death, how do the, mm-hmm. you know, how do the uh, state property, how does it get divided? Mm-hmm. Those were the arguments back then. And everybody, I mean, most people had a sympathy toward that problem right mm-hmm. and uh but boy it has evolved into something far greater you believe the way we believe or we will cancel you Back well to i that. think that that's really a part of the cancel culture mentality in fact you know in my own work now over the past 35 years in counseling women and men who who are in the same position i was in when i repented back in 1984 and said well Okay, this isn't right in the sight of God, so what do I do now? Well, there are plenty of people in the church and the Christian population who are in that same position. I've been working with them for decades. And uh, what I've found over the years is that the more I've tried to serve them, the more I've had to defend the right to serve them. So what you're saying is is pretty spot on in that uh, now the movement is basically saying um, we cannot tolerate the existence of alternative voices. And I think this has caught us off guard because, Jim, you know, in America, the Christian church has had a pretty easy relationship with the culture uh, traditionally. Now, historically, we know that's not true of the Christian church throughout the centuries. I mean, certainly the church has suffered persecution and had to deal with a lot of pushback uh, since its inception. But in America... You know, we've had basically, you know, the the blessing of religious freedom and also a country largely founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And because of that, we've had a friendly relationship with the culture, even when we didn't agree with the culture. This caught us off guard because basically we haven't been in training for the fight. We've been here to live the faith and express the faith. You know what's new to us? Defending the faith. Correct. And and that's where I think we've been out of shape. Yeah, that's right. And I think you're exactly right. We've been in a very comfortable position. But, you know, in that regard, it's interesting to me that great old saying, you know, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think whether it's in the hands of the church or in Mm -hmm. the hands of people that don't believe in God, like the cancel culture, LGBT Mm -hmm. leadership, when people get power as a movement, they usually wield it um, in very negative and even evil ways. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I'd put even the church, you know, slavery is an evil. It's a scourge. Sure. People did not catch up to that quickly enough. And, and America didn't make its correction uh, as soon as it could have. Now, I do give the founding fathers great credit for creating a document that gave a 90-year off-ramp to slavery. They just right. needed Abe Lincoln and the, you know, the American psyche to kind of move. And so it did provide a way 
for everyone to be seen as equal and created in the eyes of God, right? Right. Um, let me take you back uh, to your story, because I think people need to hear that. Mm-hmm. You've referred to it being part of the LGBTQ community. Um, let's talk about that. Yeah. Where were you at? What was going on in your life? What What do you think in that self-analysis kind of moved you in that direction? Mm-hmm. And let's talk about both the pain and then the aspiration of coming out. Yeah, Jim, I, I think... Um, the term accidental activism would apply real well (laughs) to my life because uh, I never intended to be actively defending principles that I've been utilizing just to serve people. But I think the trajectory of my life took me in that direction. Uh, I became a Christian at age 16, 1971. I'm 67 now. And uh, by that time, I had already begun identifying myself as gay which in 1971, that could get you killed. Right. Really. Um, But uh, I had had a number of relationships with adult men, and I had known for years that I was attracted to the same sex. Can I, let me, let me pull this out. Um, In that regard, where did, where did that sexual confusion, and people are going to erupt on that, the fact that I'm using that term, but where Mm -hmm. did that sexual confusion start for you? As you've had plenty of time, and you're on all sides of this debate. Sure. When you do your self-analysis, what do you think led you in that direction? I know a part of it was in my upbringing. I felt from early on, and I don't know who's to bless or who's to blame for this, so I'm not pointing fingers. I will only say that from the time I was conscious of who I was, I was also conscious of my awkwardness. I felt unwanted. I felt that I was viewed as being stupid, as being in the way, just not, not of much value. And uh, that set me up for um, a horrible encounter when I was eight years old with an adult man in the theater uh, in the downtown area of my city where I was raised in California. Um, he approached me when I was waiting to watch a movie. I was alone. I, was, I spent a lot of my time alone. I was in the lobby. He uh, chatted me up. He was very friendly. And the idea that an adult man, a father figure, if you will, found me interesting and liked me huh. and wanted to hear what I had to say, Jim, I'd have followed him off a cliff. Right. I just drank that in. So he asked me if I needed to use the restroom, and um, he followed me into the men's room and then waited till everyone was gone and grabbed me and shoved me into a stall and for about the next 20 minutes to 30 minutes sexually molested me. Now, what was a turning point about that was not just the pain and and the bewilderment of it, because I didn't even know what sex was. I sure didn't know what right. molestation was. But it was the lie. This is something I feel strongly. Anytime you have either physical abuse of a child or sexual abuse of a child, you're going to get confusion. Okay, it's, it's like this evil catechism. You know, catechism is very didactic. This is what life is. This is what you are. This is your purpose. Well, that's what molestation teaches a kid. This is what love is. This is what your body is for. You have no boundaries. This is all you're good for. Go along with it. And that Mm. lodged deeply in that little eight-year-old boy's soul. I know it did. And that set me up in a couple of ways. It left me with a deep conviction that I was not like other boys or else this would have never happened to me. Wow. Kids, when they're victims, they tend to blame themselves. Absolutely. They've got to figure, it's not the adult's fault. It's got to be me. Well, there's something obviously terrible about me that this man would have felt free to do this to me. And that kept me away from peer relationships. It made me very insecure. It left me feeling that I could not relate to boys and men the way boys and men normally relate. 
I was there to be sexualized. In right, fact, it worsened your isolation. Oh, absolutely. It, it set me up for years and years of, of living in a, a fantasy world where I would steal pornography from a liquor store and go off by myself and just view it and get lost in the imagery. So I was ripe for sexual confusion. You, you uh, ended up going out with a girl, mm-hmm. I think in high school, and that was kind of the spiritual element of that that she that was awesome yeah you know it's so funny about that i I still dated girls and i was still interested in girls well this this one in particular uh she asked me to a dance it was a backwards dance the 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 girls right the girl yeah she was a christian i kissed her goodnight said i'd love to see you again she said i'd like to take you to church i couldn't believe that church right but she did um, that Sunday, we went to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. This was at the height of the Jesus movement. Chuck this Smith. Chuck Smith. And the places burst into the seams. All yeah. these hippies that just got saved. Right. Unbelievable, Jim. I mean, um, uh, you, you know, you, you don't want to get stuck in the good old days and think, oh, God moved then and it'll never happen again. But honestly, it, it was a landmark time, I think, in church history. It, it really was. Certainly history. Southern California. Oh, my gosh. It was an earthquake. It was yeah. an earthquake. That's when I first heard the gospel. And when I heard the gospel, what confronted me was my own um, stubborn hanging on to something that I knew I was going to have to relinquish. And finally, God won that battle. So that was all well and good. But here's the problem. When I was born again, Jim, 1971, nobody was doing what you and I are doing. Right. Nobody was talking openly about this stuff from a biblical perspective. Few people were even talking about it at all, but certainly not within the church. And because of that, I thought, okay, I've repented of the sin, got that, cleaned my act up, got that. I'm in Bible studies every night, and my prayer life is thriving, and I'm, I'm doing all the right things. And I really was thriving spiritually, but I still had homosexual temptations. And I sure. thought, something's wrong here. Yeah, I'm supposed to be a new creature. Everything's supposed to be new. I should be relieved of this. No true Christian could ever feel the desires I am still feeling. There must be something wrong with me, but I was scared to death to tell anybody. And this is something I harp on with my clients that I'm working with is, for heaven's sake, don't ever think you can do this alone. If you've got a deeply ingrained sexual sin, pornography, homosexuality, whatever the thing is, if you don't bring it out into the light, forget about doing it in isolation. That's not going to happen. I tried to do it in isolation. I prayed harder. I fasted. I did all the right things. The temptations were still there. I did not understand the fact that, you know, we've got an ongoing struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Right. And that's that's the lot. of uh, That's part of Christian life. That doesn't mean we settle for sin or sinful tendencies. But it means we accept the fact that until I die or Christ comes, there's always going to be something I'm wrestling with. Let me let me get a little more specific because again, you're you're hitting the nail on the head. I think uh, you accepted Christ at 16. Mm-hmm. I did at 15. I had no boundaries. I was living with my brother. My mom and dad had already died. I was an orphan kid. Oh. I remember saying to my brother, you know, what time you want me to come home after the football game, which I was playing in, and he'd say, you know, two three in the morning should work. 15. 15, 16, 17, I had Boy, I would have no wanted your life. And, I, and I'm only saying this because um, that wobbliness, mm-hmm. if I could call it that. It, right. And I, it sounds right. like you had a similar experience to me. Oh, yeah. Although I didn't have those temptations for same-sex attraction, mm-hmm. I certainly had those temptations for the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, you just kind of wobbled along until the Lord really got a hold of me. For me, it was like 21. Right. It took about six years for the Lord to really... Um, kind of pull me from those desires. And it sounds like you were very similar. And I I think what I, I just want to emphasize that 
especially for younger believers that are still struggling with, and even older believers mm-hmm. <laughs> struggling yeah. with sin that creeps up. It, it's not, uh, you're not broken because of that. We live in a sinful world. You know, that that's something I wish somebody had told me when I was 16. Yes. Because I thought if I have temptations, if I'm struggling, I'm not that fixed. disqualifies me. Okay. Now I'm all for the idea that we, sh- we should have zero tolerance for overt sexual sin. To me, if I'm using pornography or committing adultery, I'm not struggling. I'm transgressing. But to struggle means to be tempted. And for, to my thinking, you know, temptation is a common part of the Christian life. So um, at that time, I thought it meant that, again, I was doing something wrong. Now, around that time, the gay rights movement was starting to gain visibility. And I started thinking, why am I doing this? Why am I saying no to something that is so deeply ingrained? If God didn't take it away from me, and you know, I'm just spitting in the wind, and I am tired of this, and I think I'm going to give myself permission to say yes to it. So at age 23, I left the church. I said, I'm out. This is who I am. Your identity I'm was gay. in the other. And you know what? It was pretty exhilarating. I mean, I understand at National Coming Out Day why so many people are saying, oh, I never felt so free. I get it. I get it. Because you stop keeping a secret. And you feel like you now have something solid you can cling to by way of community, built-in relationships, even celebration. You're seen as heroic for making that declaration. And for a while, there's a real high that goes with it. But I missed my fellowship with the church. I missed my relationship with God, but I wasn't really willing to submit my sexuality to God. That's when I heard about the gay church. And that's when I visited a pro-gay church. And that's when I realized there were not only plenty of people who were gay like me, there were people who were Christians who identified as gay. Mm -hmm. And this to me is an important point, Jim. Every person I met in the gay church had belonged to another church, been born again in another church, and had wrestled silently in that other church. And I'm talking people who had been Southern Baptist, Calvary Chapel, Foursquare Assembly of God, Episcopal Catholic, you name it. They had come to Christ in those other churches left those churches to embrace their sexuality, missed their spiritual relationship with God, thought they found the answer in the pro-gay church, which basically said, you can be gay and Christian. We've got a better understanding of the Bible now. It does not condemn that. It does not call it a sin. And here's how you can embrace that belief. And to a lot of us, that looked like an answer to prayer. Yeah. Uh, Joe, I want to tread into some deep waters here because I think it's important to have this discussion. I remember I wrote a book called Refocus and Mm -hmm. a a local bookstore owner who leans liberal uh, asked me to come and do a author talk and a signing. I thought, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. And I went down. There's probably 50, 60 people there right here in Colorado Springs. And there was a gay activist there. I remember at the end of my talk, uh, which really just meant how do we stay true to the principles but mm-hmm. love a, a world that is hurting. That's the general sure. principle of what I talked about. And he put his hand up and he said, you know, when are you Christians going to get out of the archaic sexual um, arena that you have lived in for thousands of years and kind of get caught up to the 21st century. And, you know, he had that little smirk on his face yeah. and I got it and I'm standing there smiling actually. Yeah. And, uh, I said, you know what, it's very kind of you to want to make me the uh, editor of the book. Um, but <laughs> not only am I not the editor, I'm not the author and I'm trying to, you know, contort my life to the scripture, which is what I think God calls me to do. I don't contort scripture to my life. Right. And my wishes and my desires. And I even said, you know, I said, hey, when it says, uh, when you look at a woman, have lust in your heart, I'd like to erase that. Right. Because that happens. Right. It happens if men are honest about it. 
And, you know, but, but we don't have that luxury. That is not what God calls us to do. Mm-hmm. It's not us bending him to our will. Right. It's our will bending right. to his. Right. And I, I think the, the deep waters of that is the acceptance of LGBT um, ideology in the church right now. More and more churches are opening that up. They're being accommodating. And it's dangerous. It's grave danger. It's grave danger. I, my, look, there are some things we can agree to disagree on, right? I mean, there are some doctrinal issues that you know, the rapture of the church, pre-trib, mid-trib, right. post-trib. I'm not going to break fellowship over that. Can you drink alcohol or can you not? I mean, the, these are secondary issues. But when you see sexual condi- uh, sin condemned, named and condemned specifically in virtually every book of the New Testament, that tells me right off the bat, if something is a sexual sin, that's serious. If homosexuality is listed as a sexual sin among many others, not more than others, not less than others, but among many others, as it is in both Testaments, then that tells me homosexual behavior constitutes sexual sin. Sexual sin is a primary moral doctrinal issue. So no, there's no room to just say we agree to disagree within the church. And the culture, we got to go along with Paul. He told the Corinthian church, it's not my job to sit here and judge those who are on the outside, okay? And he said, if you want to quit hanging around with fornicators, you're going to have to leave the planet. But Within the church, you have to recognize we answer to a different authority. And just like you were saying, God has spoken. God has spoken in and through a document that's divinely inspired so that we don't have to sit around and guess what his will is. Now, what I realized when I repented in 1984 was along the lines of what you were saying, Jim. I wasn't reading the Bible. I Mm. was reading into the Bible. I knew what I wanted it to say. And you know how it oh, totally. that. If you choke the Bible hard enough, you can make it say anything you want it to say. It's kind of like what people are doing with the Constitution. When people say it's, it's a living, breathing document right. that is always morphing or whatever, that tells me, okay, so whatever you want it to say, you can impose that meaning onto it. And I think that's what I did. I know that's what I did. Yeah, and I think, again, for the person just joining us, your testimony, which is terrific. I mean, it is authentic because you were in that space. You were... Mm-hmm leaning into the ideology of the LGBT community. And then God started working on your heart, albeit it took years to do that work. But, you know, that's what God does. So often, um, I think, Joe, sinners feel like, and by the way, we're all sinners. But when we don't know the Lord, you, you can get the impression that you have to clean your life up so that it's acceptable to God. Mm-hmm. That's not the transaction. Good luck with that. Yeah, God's going to take you right where you're at. And that actually is great comfort to the person who realizes I'm inadequate mm-hmm. when I'm in my own strength. I want to make sure we make that point that you don't have to clean your life up to yeah. be good enough for God. God's going to take you where you're at and start the great work of renewing your heart. And sometimes it can be instantaneous, like alcoholics I've met that stop drinking right then. Yeah, great. And others, it takes months, maybe years, to do the cleaning of the heart. That's a good point because, and this applies across the board, Jim, but in the kind of work I do, the change question is always the big controversial question. Can homosexual people really change? And my take on it is similar to what you were just saying. The call is the same for everyone. The outcome is individual. Hmm. So just for example, um, the end of John's gospel, Jesus is talking to Peter and he tells him, you're going to be led where you don't want to go. Peter points at John and says, well, what about him? And Jesus says, you know what? That's really none of your business. You follow me, he'll follow me, and the outcomes will be different. 
Yeah. Now, I repented of homosexuality in 1984. I found that within even a year, the strength of the attractions had hugely changed to the point that I met and fell very deeply in love with a woman who I've been married to 35 years now. Hmm. Now, I know other people who repented, and after three, four decades, they still are essentially attracted to the same sex. They have no attraction to the opposite sex. Their outcome was different. They and I were both called to follow Jesus. The outcome may be different. Now, does that mean they did something wrong, I did something right? No, no. I mean, they're living godly lives and they're living healthy lives. They have temptations that I don't have, but I got plenty of temptations they don't have. So this this whole idea of narrowing it down to determining success by the absence of temptation, it's not a very biblical concept. We're all called to take up our cross, deny ourselves and follow him. Some of us may experience this this remarkable transformation in some area. Some of us will continue to steward our area of temptation mm. and, um, and, 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 and everything in between. You know? But I guess the point is we have to recognize that all of us are called to the obedient, taking up the cross, following him, living the disciple's life, leave the outcome in God's hands. Yeah, and I so appreciate that. Um, again, we're talking about your great book here, Christians in a Cancel Culture, Speaking with Truth and Grace in a Hostile World. Yeah. And it's you know increasingly hostile in that regard, uh, Joe. But uh, let's get back to the cancel culture component of that. Right. Um, the psychological impact. I, I've used this analogy. I, it's kind of like telling a person a dream. If you didn't have that dream, it's hard to understand what the person right, is trying right. to convey. Yeah. But I remember being in China and I was talking to government officials as well as you know, underground church leadership, et cetera. And they kind of looked at the one-child policy, which was China's policy for right. decades. You know, right. Each family, in order to control their population, needed to have only one child. And think of that. It created a, a society with no cousins and a, a lot of issues. Right. Uh, gender uh, displacement, 60 65% of the babies born are male because they're favored versus females at about 40, 45%. It's really a a catastrophic policy that government sets in place. But in that regard, the people um, looked at it as the man. You know, the man's laying this burden on us. And it's the government laying this law down. And we certainly don't like it. We don't appreciate that. But it is what they are requiring of us. And when I came back to the U.S. and I started to see that cancel culture grow here over the last decade, Mm -hmm. really, um, it's actually, to me, it's more insidious because it's coming from kind of the culture itself. Right. It's not the government, the heavy hand of government, although some within the government certainly play along with it and Mm -hmm. give it strength, give it wind. But to me, it's more insidious because it's your neighbor. It's Mm -hmm. the people that Mm -hmm. you shop at the same grocery store that look down on you if you don't do it the way they say you should do it. Speak to the difference of that if you're capturing that, it seems like. So, you know, the heavy hand of government versus the groundswell of changing the culture in a direction we want to go and yeah. Well, the heavy hand of government is self-explanatory, isn't it? Mm. I mean, if the government says, here's an edict, obey, peasants. Well, you know, okay, I'm under an authoritarian regime. I get it. Yeah. It's very clear. But but when transformation happens culturally, we are kind of like, she- like sheep. We are like sheep. I mean, we are very susceptible to our peers. Very. And, and we, more we so. take a lot of our cues from our peers. So when the culture around us is shifting... In, in, in a direction whereby it is saying, you know, Jim, 
your beliefs make you a little weird. Then shifting even more to, you know, Jim, your beliefs make you hateful too. Jim, I'm not going to have anything to do with you unless you change your beliefs. You feel like, like you're in that horror film, The Body Snatchers, where all the people around you, they look the same, but something's happening. Right. You know, like, wow, wait a minute. When did we become enemies? But I think that that happened in America in particular because it wouldn't have worked to try to transform the culture by just saying from the government down, all right, everybody changed. Well, as Americans, we'd have said, are you nuts? No. But when the culture is changing, it's like Abraham Lincoln said, hey, public opinion is everything. I mean, if you get public opinion on your side, eventually you can pass any law, even if it is unconstitutional, because the public is going to say it's okay. Yeah. And it's, you know, the Constitution is like the Bible. I mean, yes, the Bible is authoritative. It's the word of God. But if you're ignoring it, what authority does it have in your life? And I think that's the, where we are in America with the Constitution. A lot of us are comforting ourselves that we have it. That's very nice. But if it's being butchered, then it's not going to do us much good. Yeah. But I think that culturally, the influencers persuaded the culture. First, they started with a challenge in the 60s. You remember how, well, I certainly remember, the 60s was basically a, a challenge to long-held ideas. Like, maybe there's another way of looking at this. What's right? What's wrong? What's moral? What's immoral? And so, you know, there was a lot of upheaval then that uh, morphed into a sort of contempt by the 90s. Gosh, I remember um, when Dan Quayle, Vice President Quayle, dared to suggest <laughs> that a two-parent family is better for raising kids than a one-parent family. Wow, you'd think that the Nazis had just landed. I mean, the that's reaction amazing. culturally, and that's when I realized we have gone from challenge to contempt. Right. But now the contempt has gone to control. Now, basically, what, what I think the cultural influencers, education, media, entertainment industry, certainly psychiatric industry, they have successfully, through their influence, convinced the culture that the views we hold are not just wrong or contemptible, but dangerous. Yeah. Now, if you convince the culture that somebody is dangerous, you can get the culture excited and energized against those people. That, I think, is what's happened. It's amazing. And, you know, as we see it on the news or if you're looking at YouTube or something, you mm -hmm. see these uh, campus conflicts oh, at universities. Great example. And to me, that's where the battle's being fought. Yep. You know, the ability to speak openly and honestly about ideas is right. crushed right. on college campuses today. Uh, right. Conservatives and the kids call can't this speak virtue. There. Yeah, and they think they it's think virtuous. it is virtuous to show yeah. up, throw a tantrum, shout the person down, and have absolutely nothing intelligent to say yeah. other than obscenities. But that's considered the noble thing to do. Let me ask you this: How how could their their view of that be so clouded? That, in other words, when you know, let's face it, there was a more entrenched Judeo Christian value system sure for. Was. 300 years here, and they fought against that, and yeah. then they actually become the very thing that they were fighting against, intolerant, uh, unable to yeah, see the point. viewpoint of the other. So they're actually setting up these campuses to where you can't express anything conservative. Yeah. Isn't that exactly what they were fighting against? Yeah, but you know, um, it's hard to fight the addiction to virtue. Wow. <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, seriously, if, if you hold young people, especially are susceptible to this, but I think we all are. I think we've got a God given need to be a part of something noble. Yeah. You know, I, I remember high school, we studied the Holocaust and I was just captivated mm. by the European underground, the resistance, the people who sheltered Jews and smuggled them out of the country and, you know, risked their lives to fight the villain and protect the victim. And I thought how awesome to be part of something noble like that. I think yeah. people are hungry for that, kids especially, young people especially. 
So when you convince a group that there's a villain to fight mm-hmm. and victims to protect, and you give a group an opportunity to be a part of that noble war against the villain, the group goes, wow, sign me up. Now, unfortunately, as we speak, we are an intellectually lazy culture. Right. Well, we just don't check things out. We listen to sound bites. Correct. So if we hear a sound bite that's appealing, oh, the church is bigoted, the trans community is the victim of the church's bigotry, then without examining the legitimacy of those claims, tons of people are signing up. Now, once you sign up and you get on the virtue crusade, you're feeling pumped. You right. feel good. Empowered. And I, I look at those kids marching into the universities to disrupt the speaker and take over. And, you know, at first you think, well, they're so full of themselves. What a bunch of egotists. And I think that's largely true. But I think there's something even more going on. They're drunk on virtue. Huh. Now, once you've Self-virtue. gotten... Self-virtue. Yeah, exactly. It's not <laughs> true virtue. It's a right. very false virtue. But but it masquerades as virtue. And, and the thing of it is, once you've gotten dependent on that, just like an alcoholic... You don't want to give it up. It really has become an essential part of your identity and experience, and even the rush of it is really meaningful to you. So if you now start to question, well, wait a minute, is that person who's speaking really a villain? Are these people really victims? Is this really right? No, 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 wait, that's unacceptable. Why? Because there goes my identity. I'm a virtue warrior. And if you tell me that I've been fighting the wrong battle, I'm going to have to renounce everything I've been doing. Well, who wants to do that? Right. So I think that that makes it all the more difficult for people to admit that they are caught up in crusades that are based on false premises. Right, which has a, you know, has its roots in pride. Sure. Ironically, and that's what the scripture talks about as well. It can blind you, that pride can blind you. Jill, let me ask you this question, though. Um, So many Christians that, you know, are wanting to live this life well, they want to treat their neighbor correctly, even if they're disagreeing with them. in that context, I mean, what is there for the church in this moment in history when you see these things, what I would describe as foundational things, like the definition mm-hmm. of marriage, the definition of male and female? You mm-hmm. know, recently the Sup- Supreme Court nominee, when asked the question, can you define what a girl is, what a woman is, it's a little she scary. declined. Yeah. I, you know, when we're in that place, it seems like, wow. How, how do we even communicate with the other side, those people that are the virtue warriors? And can this actually even get better? Where's the hope? I think we have got to reignite our trust in the fact that truth is truth and truth is still powerful and the word of God still works because it does. I know that there is more pushback than ever. And I think sometimes we make the Elijah mistake. Oh my gosh, everything's lost. Everybody's bowed the knee to Baal and I'm the only one left. That's no, not true. But I understand the bewilderment. I think that we're, we're at this time largely a bewildered people. Those of us who are either in the Bible-believing church or even people who are not Christians but hold socially conservative views, it's a bewildering time. Like mm-hmm. either they're nuts or I'm nuts. I think a woman is a woman. And I never thought that I needed a PhD to tell you, yeah, that's a woman. Right. But the culture is saying I do. And the culture is saying that if somebody says, I'm a male or I'm a female, they are. And everything about common sense tells me, well, I don't get to say I'm a millionaire and go to my bank and say, I identify as a millionaire, hand it over. They'd say, you're delusional, buddy, go home. Not in this issue. And I think because of that, a lot of us are thinking, well, I guess 
we either better just shut up or cave in or, you know, go into isolation or there's no hope of impacting the culture, much less of living our lives in a robust way. Now, at the risk of sounding hyper-spiritual, I don't like getting into the devil too much, but hey, if I hated humanity the way Satan does, I'd play it this way. Yeah, go right to the weakness. Absolutely. I would first of all do everything I could to confuse what God defined and what God called good. What happened when God created humanity? He looked on humanity's definition, male, female. He looked on sex, male, female. He looked on marriage, male, female, and he called it good. Yes. Now, if I hated humanity, I'd say, man, I'm going to disfigure that. Right. I'll make it so confusing you won't know what's good or bad anymore. Yeah. And then I will I will declare there's going to be hell to pay who, to anybody who gets in my way. And when you look at the, what else can you call it, but unreasonable, even rabid reaction we get when we dare to say, we're not trying to force you, but we do believe that we have a creator who created us male and female for male and female union, and that defines marriage and thus the family. When you look at the pushback you get on that, you realize <clears throat> that's an empowered pushback. It really is. And I think that's largely, I'm not saying all the people in these movements are demon-possessed. I'm not. I'm just saying there's a spiritual backdrop to this that is absolutely empowering it. And I think that the church's position has got to be one of simplicity. Simplicity meaning this, Jim, I think we try to get too fancy and figure out, okay, let's, let's start really doing extensive research to see how we can better communicate and finesse all of the things we need to do. Now, good grief, if the early church had thought that way, the gospel would have never gotten past Samaria. You know, I mean, I think that we need to get back to the basics of realizing the word of God is still living and powerful. If we will preach it faithfully, we preach evangelism to the unsaved. They need to be born again. If somebody's transgender or homosexual or whatever they are, if they have not been born again, that's secondary. You know, Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, she was in sexual sin. He wasn't so into telling her she was in sin. He recognized it and he by no means validated it. But he said, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Yeah. I want you to know me. I want you to live. Because okay? that's where it starts. That's the point. I yeah. mean, shoot, if I hadn't been born again, why would I have ever questioned my sexuality? Correct. Why would I even care? And that's where most of these people are living. I mean, that's they, my point. Yeah. So to them, we preach the gospel. Within yeah. the church, we disciple. To the world, we speak prophetically. Yeah. And I think that what we're going to have to abandon is the idea that if the world is telling us we're hateful, we should believe our own bad press. Yes, let's not be jerks about it. We, we You've mentioned pride, and I think that's that's what's tripped us up from the beginning. Let's always be humble enough to examine ourselves, examine the way we are presenting truth, examine the way we relate to people. Let's be aware of who we are. We've yeah. been forgiven much. Let me just reiterate uh, something Joe mentioned right near the end there about humility, the importance of humility. I think it starts right there. I mean, we've got to remember that that our core as Christians should be humility. And from there, that love will flow. Sometimes when it comes to the love message, you know, I've had conversations with other Christian leaders and they'll say, yeah, but what about God's righteousness? Who's going to make sure the world knows about his righteousness? And I really do think that's in the Father's uh, job description. It's important for us to live righteously so that we're uh, on display for people to see what a righteous life looks like, even with our shortcomings as human beings. But at the same time, the tool in the toolbox is the love of Christ. I think that's the one that intimidates Satan the most because he can't compete with it. When you love somebody, even somebody who does not believe the way you believe, 
um, something happens to their heart. It cracks open when they feel sincere love from you. It's like a pre-wiring that the Lord has done in our spiritual DNA. And I've seen it happen with abortion, people that work in the abortion industry, people that are in the LGBT community. When you're loving them sincerely, um, man, I have seen it where their hearts crack open to the message of the gospel. And that is what I'm trying to do with this podcast, with Refocus, is to talk more in depth about developing relationships, having dialogue and discussion with people that may disagree with us, and how to be equipped to do that. One way to be better equipped is by getting a copy of Joe Dallas's excellent book, Christians in a Cancel Culture, Speaking with Truth and Grace in a Hostile World. And please support the efforts here to educate and inspire not only you, but others uh, to encourage everyone to spread the good news of Jesus Christ in a world that desperately needs him. And with a gift of any amount, I'll send you a copy of Joe's book. The link is in the episode notes. Now to the inbox segment where I take your questions and find out what's on your mind, especially when it comes to engaging the culture and sharing Christ with others. Here's a question from Lauren who said this, my husband and I raised our son in the church and he was so full of love for Christ. When he went away to college, he turned his back on God and told us he's gay. We've tried to accept him and his lifestyle and make things as normal as possible, but every time he comes home, he leaves angry about something. He gets mad when we pray or talk about religion. My husband thinks our son is very self-centered and doesn't really care if he visits us or not. I can't let him go, and I feel so broken. What can we do besides pray? First of all, man, the, the heaviness of that, because... We all start with expectations as parents, what our children will grow up to be. I remember a Time Magazine reporter asked me, kind of in a snarky way, what if your boys grow up and one of them says, Mom, Dad, I'm gay, what will you do? And I don't know what answer she was looking for, but I said, I'll love them. And she looked stunned, like it's impossible for a Christian to love their gay son or daughter. It's not. I mean, that is one facet of someone's life, their sexual expression, their sexual orientation. And I think uh, as Christians, I think we need to continue to be loving and kind to our son or daughter who may say, I'm gay. But same time, you don't have to give up what you believe and who you are. And I think in every way, making accommodation to have them over and to still be loving and kind to them as their parent is critically important because the only thing that they're going to hang on to is the relationship cord that you have with them. And if you sever that through anger, through outbursts, through really disrupting the relationship too much, um, then you have nothing to work with. And I think the Lord wants us to maintain that relationship. I mean, these are your children, and you want to maintain that relationship. So how do you stay bold, loving, and kind? And there you can get some help right here at Focus on the Family from our counseling department. We have wonderful resources that can give you some ideas on what you can do to open conversations up and uh, hopefully lead them in a discussion, an honest discussion about where they're at and what they're experiencing. The one most powerful conversation I had was with Rosaria Butterfield. The first time I interviewed her, she was the head of queer studies at Syracuse University. And a pastor sent her a letter saying, my wife and I would like to have you over to our home for dinner. 
And it kind of flustered her. She didn't know what to do. It wasn't hate mail, but it was from a Christian. She was used to hate mail from Christians, if you could believe that. And she took them up on their offer. And over about a two and a half year period through Bible study and talking about God, the nature of God, she finally realized that she was in the wrong spot as a lesbian. And she said, as a PhD in English literature, this was so beautiful when she expressed it to me. She said, I was living my life as my verb, lesbian, not as the noun that God made me. And that noun was made in his image. And I was like, wow, say that again, because we all suffer from that. Whatever Satan whispers in our ear about adulterer, liar, cheater, homosexual, fill in the blank. It's whatever sin that has you by the ankle. And what a profound statement to say we've got to look at ourselves as the noun made in his image, not the verb that is so wrapped in sin. Boy, that'll change your perspective. Lauren, thanks for the heartfelt question. I know it's a hard situation, and we'll be praying that God will mend those relationships in your family. Uh, For the listener, if you have a question for me, go to the website and click the button on the side of the show page to leave us a voicemail. If we use your question on the podcast, I'll send you my book, Refocus, Living a Life That Reflects God's Heart. Thanks for listening to Refocus with Jim Daly. Be sure to like us, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And then join us next time as Ryan Bomberger visits with me about issues related to life and liberty. And as Christians, we have to remember, we have to distinguish between (laughs) loving every human being and loving every human doing. They're not the same. Mm. And when we love every human being, we're going to be courageous enough to actually speak those truths. That's next time on Refocus with Jim Daly. God wants true disciples, ones that think like him talk like him, walk like him, disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship Series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com.